Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. You can find all of our previous episodes and some highlights on the website and that's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm and you can also find uh, all of our stuff and lots of articles, a presentation that I've given recently. You can find all of that on our Twitter and you'll find that by searching Eat Sleep Work Repeat. Hello to all new listeners, top five in the UK business charts this week and top 20 in the US. So what a treat we've got in store for your fresh new ears. Today's guest is Seth Godin. Seth Godin is basically an internet legend whose story is the story of the internet. He's been around since before Google exploded, set up a couple of startups himself, selling one of them to Yahoo. And he's been a constant reminder that we just need to be more inventive rather than just working harder in our jobs. He started his career packaging books, which is so fascinating that we we chat a little bit about it. I was interested whether book design and book packaging might be a good route to sort of get our creative juices flowing. He then wrote to his own fame, writing a book about permission marketing. So if you've ever received email from a company, he invented that. Uh, So you've got him to thank. He's become a legend of the internet. He blogs every day. He's got over a million people reading his daily posts. And he's a guru in marketing who's written 18 books. The chat is brilliant. It goes everywhere. Clearly, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat isn't a marketing podcast. But Seth's new book, This Is Marketing, covers themes of how to market something to be a success. One of the things I've heard when I put these episodes out is some people say, how would I bring this change to my work? If I'm not the boss, how would I get the boss to do this? And that was the challenge I put to Seth. If you're not the boss, could we use his rules of marketing, his rules of spreading ideas to lead a cultural change program with listeners' workplaces? His answers were really unorthodox. And I think they're rooted in his belief that sometimes we think that being big is better than being good. He'll go on to explain that. I think the most interesting part of the discussion is talking through his story and he's just constantly inventive. He's refreshingly original. And so I, lo- I love the responses he gave to questions because I guess sometimes you, you, you know what you're going to get from someone, especially when you've read their book. He was just a constant surprise. I think the overall theme I had was sometimes we can find ourselves being a version of that quote by the US Patent Office in the 19th, turn of the 19th, 20th century. Do you know that thing where they said, we're we're laying people off because all the ideas have been invented? And it's so easy for all of us to look at the way that we're doing things now and think, yeah, all the good ideas are taken. 
it's Seth, really, in his approach that makes me think, wow, we should aim higher. What's the next new idea? So pick his brain on all these themes. As I mentioned, he's written this massively inspirational book called This Is Marketing. So anyway, it's pretty clear. I love this discussion. My friend Emma Gannon said to me that her discussion with Seth a couple of years ago changed her life. And uh, it's certainly you're going to find it a really stimulating hour. Here's Seth. Seth, so so thrilled to talk to you. Now, before we talk about all manner of marketing and, and persuasion and all manner of things, there was something that really struck me, which was that, you know, there's some jobs. I wonder if people would benefit from doing certain jobs for a week, almost if there was national service to work in a burger restaurant for a week. Personally, I think no one works harder than they, they do in fast food. But there was something when I was going through your experience, I was thinking, I wonder if there's some benefit in people doing book packaging for a week. <laughs> because your description of working in book packaging made me wonder whether that was one of the things that helped cultivate this this creative and productive spark in you. Do you want to just ex- describe your time working in book packaging? And what is book packaging? And what is book packaging? A great place to start. Uh, for 15 or 20 years, what I did for a living was what a movie producer does for movies, but for books. So the problem in the 80s and 90s was that book publishers had the ability to publish big books, complicated books, clever books, but they didn't have enough people to make them. So I made almanacs, I made how-to books, I made books on personal finance and gardening. Sometimes I wrote them, sometimes I put together a team to make them. But the act of putting on a show in the form of a book was thrilling to me because it was project-oriented. But I balanced that with the fact that I worked in food service. I was uh, almost killed when I worked at the bagel factory by the giant mixer that I almost fell into. And I, I, I had a, I once poked a hole in my head because uh, I was taking the hot dogs off the, the spinning wheel at the hot dog stand where I used to work. And my friend Scott, who started Meetup, before he started Meetup, after he sold his first company, he got a job at McDonald's for three months. And right. You learn a lot about why you don't want to be a cog in a machine that doesn't care about your humanity. And I think that helps us then when we have a job that lets us be human, figure out how to put that humanity to work to influence other people. And I loved doing that as a book packager. And I think that that informed my desire to tell stories about the products I was making so that people would engage with them. Because the fact is, you don't know what's in a book until after you buy it. And that means you have to tell a story about it in order to make the sale. And for a lot of us, that's what we do. We make something that people can't experience until after they've paid for it. Right. There was just an interesting, I mean, firstly, the, the, the book, was the Fortune Cookies book ever, ever did it, I mean, that was the one that I was captivated by. Explain to me, pitch me the Fortune Cookies book. Okay. So in the United States, uh, Fortune Cookies are a big deal. In uh, the UK, it's uh, Christmas crackers, right? Right, yeah, and, sort of same thing. And in China, there are no Fortune Cookies. So it turned out that in 1988 or whenever I thought of the idea, you could not find a recipe for fortune cookies because it wouldn't be in a Chinese cookbook and it wouldn't be in an American cookbook. So there was no recipe for fortune cookies available. But the other challenge was that if you wanted to make fortune cookies, you also needed fortunes and people have trouble when they're trying to write, et cetera. So this was right around the time my wife was applying to law school and 
So I made her a bunch of fortunes that predicted she was going to do well on an upcoming exam. And I fished them into fortune cookies. And one night I squatted them out at the restaurant. She she was all excited. So, oh, I got an idea here. (laughs) I'll make a book with 2,000 fortunes in it, all perforated, and the recipe. So you can make your own fortune cookies at home and put in clever fortunes. That was a great idea. No one wanted it. Didn't. (laughs) For me, this is like the best unpublished book of all time. (laughs) No, but there was just something interesting because I was chatting to Biz Stone, a Twitter founder, and he told me he used to do book cover design. Right. And he said, when you work in design, something about design thinking is there's more than one correct answer for anything. That's right. And so it produces this constant inventive ingenuity. It's just how about, how about, how about. And actually, it, ju- it just struck me when I was reading your stuff about book packaging that, you know, that sense of how about, how about, that constant, okay, if not this, how about this? If not this, how about that? It just struck me that that was, that was an interesting lesson. Well, and this is one, you know, if we're going to bring this back to Twitter for just a minute, the stats I've seen is that most people use Twitter to read, not to write. And that one of the most common things to do if you're a writer is to retweet as opposed to write something original. People freak out when there's a blank sheet of paper in front of them. And what social media has done is put a blank sheet of paper in front of everyone. And that means that we are all marketers in the sense that that Facebook update you're going to do or that tweet you're going to do, you are marketing yourself, you are marketing your idea. You have constraints, you're going to put that in front of other people. And the question is, will that earn you trust? Will it earn you attention? Will it change your status? Will it have an impact on the people you are seeking to influence? And all of those things add up. Whereas 50 years ago, most people were cogs in a fast food system. Now, the people who are listening to this podcast have tools. And those tools are connected to a billion other people. And so then the question is, what are you going to do with the tools? There's an interesting thing. I, I want to sort of go through the, the stages. So I... I um I was really struck just to sort of the finish of the book packaging thing and, and sort of entering to what you say there, that sometimes the way that we we label things, the way that we name things and the way that we sort of frame things have far more impact on the outcome than we would exactly. expect. And the, ex- the example I'm specifically thinking of is your experience with this sort of best-selling book that set you on the, the way, but um, Permission Marketing. I, I think you told me that well, I think I read that you were doing this for a long time, but it wasn't until you produced the name Permission Marketing. It seems to, that was the thing that connected with people that they said, right, I have a requirement for that now. Is, is that right? Have I, have I surmised that? Probably? Yeah, yeah. So, so there, like, there are two parts uh, to that that I think are relevant here. So I started the first internet company that used email as a marketing tool in history. So if you've ever gotten an email from a company, it's my fault. We didn't, do, we didn't do spam. We did the opposite of spam. We invented this idea that you could engage with a customer by email and they would be glad you did, right? That was a revolutionary idea when we started doing it. And we, it would take us three, four, five years to get our big companies, like we worked with American Express and Carter Wallace and Procter & Gamble, years and years of showing up and showing up to try to explain to them why they needed what we were doing. And I said to my VP of marketing, I'm going home and I'm not coming in tomorrow until I have figured out what to call what we do. 
You knew it was a name issue, yeah. or or you right. just decided well, not, you needed it's not that the, name. the name is not the issue. The na- the question is what bucket does the person who's busy put right. what you are doing in, right? And if there is no bucket, then they will probably not pay attention at all. So we needed to put ourselves in a bucket, or else we were going to be ignored. And so I got in the shower. And I said, I'm not getting out of the shower until I have a way to talk about this. And I was in the shower till it became cold. And then I had no choice but to solve my problem. And I realized that by calling it permission marketing, we put it in a bucket. It's a form of marketing. And what's the opposite of permission marketing? Everyone else is doing something that's not based on reciprocal invitation, not based on permission. Therefore, if your ethos matches this idea that you want to be welcomed, then we make sense. And then the second thing that happened was uh, I wrote a book about it because I figured that putting a book in someone's inbox was way easier than me and five other people making a sales call. And the cover of the book I designed, and it was a picture of me from the nose up looking up in the air. Now, in those days, Book covers for business books, if you ask Biz Stone, will tell you, did not look like this. All business book covers just had words on them. Well, my editor had been Nabokov's editor. So he was completely distracted and not particularly interested in me. And so he said, do whatever you want. And the fact that my picture was on the cover of a book in 1998-99, with that artful pose, people who picked up the book said, this guy must be famous. How come I've never heard right. of him? Because I was acting yeah. as if. And that was about status roles. That was about what bucket do I put this in? And so that transformed my career because not only was it a good idea, it presented to the world as an idea you needed to know. If there's an idea for the right time and the right place, do you think people could get away with that now? Because I, I guess 98, you know, the web the web was there, the, the people searched things. But I remember I bought that book and I, rem- I remember thinking exactly that at the time. Oh, how come How come I, I didn't be, I, I'm not aware of this guy? And do you think now people would head to Google or they'd search? Or no, look I, dis- and, I disagree. No, or um, do you think you can, all, you can still blag it? If you had looked me up in, there was no Google. If you looked me up in Yahoo at the time, you would have found plenty of good stuff. That, that wasn't the issue. The issue was, what bucket emotionally do I put this person in? Well, we see that happening today. For example, if you're an up-and-coming rap star and you can get Drake to guest appear on one of your tracks, you've just moved up in status bucket-wise with the potential purchaser. The potential purchaser doesn't say, well, why well, haven't heard this person on uh, you know, on caviar, they just say, oh, well, if Drake's there, that must mean something. And human beings don't change. Human beings are still processing everything around us to try to figure out if it's safe, to try to figure out if it's worthy, to try to figure out if we should investigate it more. And one of the things that marketers do is we fly flags. And the flags are like a semaphore, right? It's a symbol. And the pirate flag is a very famous symbol. You saw the pirate flag coming at you from 400 feet. You knew exactly what you were in for. And what I'm arguing here is that if we're all marketers, and we are, you've got to decide what your flag is going to be. Because if you don't have a flag, we're just going to ignore you. 
So I was reading the, uh, your, your new book, This Is Marketing, and, and, I, and I was really interested because th- on, on this podcast, we talk a lot about, um, about improving work. And one of the things that people say to me all the time, they say, I'm not sure how to do this in my company. And as I was going, right. through, as, as I was going through your book, there's sort of a, a really clear model of, of sort of marketing and, and, and what marketing was. And I thought, okay, well, actually, let's try, let me try and use my amateur mind to try and apply this model to, to that person, that person in an organization, they've got an audience of probably the bosses and peers. How could they now? So, so some of the some of the things you talk about in, in the, the model I felt were relevant to someone who might be taking on the challenge that he's not the boss of an organization. She's not the boss, but she wants to try and uh, to influence change in their organization. I, I just wonder if you could give me a sense of how you would set about doing that. You're, you're, you're you know, someone with a couple of years tenure. The, the, the workplace that you're in is, you sure. know, is exhausting and this performative busyness around you. No one takes a lunch break. You convince these are good people. How do we, how do we change it using your systems? Well, so the temptation is to say the facts are sufficient. Let me put together a deck with the percentages, with some graphs to prove that I'm right. But that doesn't go to any of the worldview or understanding of the people you seek to to reach. So for example, if you have enough trust and enrollment from the person you seek to reach, that they will listen to you. If you don't, we'll get to that in a second. But if you do, And you know that the organization you work cares a lot about status, cares a lot about its standing in the community, cares a lot about um, winning. One thing you could do is say, here are our five biggest competitors. Here is the percentage of workplace injuries in each one, right? And we're in last place. The sentence, we're in last place, is fundamentally different than 14% 14% of our blah, 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 blah. We're in last place. Because if you say to someone who cares about status and winning, and you have the trust and enrollment from them, we're in last place. And then you say to them, would you like to not be in last place? What is the answer that you think you're going to get? It's about how did we tell a story, a true story that resonated with the way they see the world, right? Totally different way to do it. Totally different is to say, guess what? Five people in this plant had a very significant injury last year. So instead of me putting on the slide five people, what I do is I take my smartphone and I go and I meet all five of them with their families convalescing at home. And I edit it into a 90-second video. And then I go sit with the boss and say, some people have a message for you. And it's 90 seconds, that's all. And then I say, what do you think we should do about this? Or if you're in marketing, and the, team, the bosses aren't giving you the resources you need to build your brand, go to Union Square, film 40 customers all looking into the camera, completely staring blankly at you when you ask them about what you do. Edit that into a supercut that's 60 seconds long and have it start going viral internally. That's how we tell a story. That's how stories are told to us, right? But the last part of it, which is a bigger part, and I wrote a book called Lynchpin about this, most people who say, I can't get stuff done around here are saying it 
because they came up through the industrialized education system that's all about compliance and authority and about doing what you're told. So they have a job and they think they're supposed to do what they're told. But if you look at the people who succeed at that job, those people don't do what they're told. They do what's right. So the real way to win is to just do it and to take responsibility for doing it, right? And that act is where Google AdWords came from. That act is where the hashtag came from, right? I, I just heard a, an interview on the radio the other day. The guy who made the hashtag work in search didn't sit down with Biz and Jack and say, can I add the hashtag? He just added the hashtag because it turns out you're probably, if you're doing the right thing, not going to get fired. And if you're doing the right thing and it doesn't work and you take responsibility, you're probably not going to get fired. But if you're hoping for authority, authority is hard to find. Responsibility is pretty easy to find. Right. So, so if I'm summarizing, so I, I suspect most people aren't going to work in an environment where these these big industrial injuries these days, or certainly people listening to this, aren't. I don't have a lot of steel workers, unfortunately, in my audience. But they, they, they might be doing something more. But like you say, the the connection of the audience being. Um, unaware of the brand or, or things like that are more likely. I'm interested then because you talk there about you're effectively trying to get buy into a story, a, a buy into a narrative. The narrative in your case, you said was we're losing or we're not winning. Um, and I was, I was interested then in your means of taking that message from your head and putting it in someone else's head. And you, you're not a big fan of PowerPoint, are you? On, I'm not a big on, fan on of bullet basis. points. Right. I mean, bullets are for the NRA. That's the problem with bullet points is basically what you're doing is performing a memo. And to perform a memo to multiple people in real time is a complete waste. And the mindset of the person who's watching you perform a memo is to tune out. That in fact, and I was one of the first people to do this a long time ago, you can use PowerPoint in a completely different way, which is do nothing but pictures and videos in your PowerPoint, and then leave the memo behind when you're done. Because the picture goes to a different part of the brain. And so if I show you a picture of something and then tell you a story about it, now both parts of your brains are active. And my leave behind memo, which I give you at the end, is proof that I talked about something. And this is the way I do my keynotes, and it's starting to spread because the fact is we understand how people's brains work and just showing them five bullets so that you can a year later say, well, I told you, that's a really inefficient way to express yourself. Is that just because it just doesn't land in people's emotional core? We can't read and listen at the same time. Right. You mentioned, you said, if, if there's no trust, you're trying to sell this in. So I'm just thinking some of the things I often invite people to do are like – a really mundane, like take a lunch break. But, but there's a lot of companies that are in a state of learned helplessness that the people there don't feel able to take, take a lunch break or there's pressure from their bosses not to take a lunch break. So so what would you do in that situation? You're, you're someone who isn't necessarily going to be listened to. Okay, so there, there are two situations. One, you're actually not allowed to take a lunch break, right? That you work in a regimented institution where you are a cog in the system and you're not actually allowed to take a lunch break. You should quit because you're not going to be able to change that system if you don't have the trust to do so. You signed up 
to work at Burger King. So don't be surprised that that's the rules. More likely, you think that that's the rule, but it isn't really the rule. So then the question is, who are the high status people at your level who, if they took a lunch break, wouldn't be seen as undermining everything? So if your peers, the high status ones, once a week, start going out to do this high productivity offsite hour together, then the question is, will that status translate back to the rest of the team into the sentence, people like us do things like this? Because that simple seven-word sentence is the essence of culture, corporate culture, any culture. People like us do things like this. So who are the people like us and what are the things like this? And so if you're, you know, if you're the class clown and you're the person who's always uh, lagging behind on your numbers and you decide to change the company's dress code by not wearing a suit to work, it's not going to work because you're not people like us. You just made yourself further an outlier. But if two or three high performers start wearing casual clothes to work on Fridays, oh, the people like us, the people I seek to be like, that's what they do, then a new norm will be set. And so the, the idea behind norm setting is not to prove on a P&L that it was worth the money. The idea behind norm setting is the people you seek to be like, the people like us, this is what we're doing now. And that is what our reptilian brain will respond to, that my role models or the people I can't afford to offend, they're already acting this way. And it, what you will discover is if you uh, are in a cultural institution where that happens, it's going to spread like wildfire. Right. Okay. And so, so because basically you, you've, you talk about sort of uh, successful marketing is getting ideas that, that spread fast. And, and so, so to some extent, getting something like that, which is iconic people, the sort of the heroes of the organization, to get them to do it probably does the work for you. And it can be something, you know, in, in the US, we're seeing this with the Me Too movement for sure, because it was powerful people who were getting away with it. And so when a Harvey Weinstein and a Charlie Rose and a Louis C.K. get taken down, people like us, we don't do things like that anymore because those were the people that were held out as authorities. And so it doesn't make any sense to start hassling the people at the bottom of the pyramid because they're already at the bottom of the status pyramid. And I, so the reason... On. No, I just wonder, do you think then actually the, the reason why it toppled was also because of the, the high status of the people who came forward? Because, you know, we were used to seeing, you know, the chairman of the IMF uh, have a hotel maid accuse him, but we didn't have big right. Hollywood actresses. And, and so, exactly. so, you know, so status and status, right. both, both of them involved, you know, and, and so what we've got to think through is. Human beings, like all sentient animals, wonder who eats lunch first. Who eats lunch first at the oasis, on the savanna, the lions, whatever it is. Who eats lunch first is a dominant question in corporate culture. And status roles are something that people have top of mind all the time. So you've got to be a student of that and learn to see it. Because if you can see it and decode it, you can then use the status roles to cause change to happen, to move it forward. Okay, so that makes sense. Now, now I wonder if there's something 
that you, you talked about tribes and you talked about sort of building a, a uh, sort of a group of like-minded people. Do you think there's a role for for that that thinking actually to be applied when it comes to trying to reform the culture in an organisation to try and sort of build a movement? Oh, exactly. So let's say I'll leave out workplace injuries. Let's say I'm working in a white collar institution, and I think we're not intellectual enough. We're not asking hard enough questions. We're not. We're spending way too much time on the one week turnaround, not the six month turnaround. Start a book club, right? Start a book club and get two high-status people and four not-high-status people to meet once a week to talk about a book. Well, guess what? Other people are going to say, why aren't I in the book club? And then you've got to say, no, you can't be in the book club. Because as soon as you say, no, you can't be in the book club, the status of the book club goes up. Right. Right? And hang, so on, now- so, hang on. So why, why are we telling these people they can't be in? We're not. We're telling them they can't be in it because we want the status to go up, right? And so now they'll start another book club because they see that one way to get status is to be in a book club, right? Right. But the, so the whole dynamic of what's shifting in corporate culture—it's almost never written down in a memo. It's all of this unmeasurable stuff that is the same stuff that drives sneaker manufacturers, s- social networks, people who make widgets. It's all, we don't know exactly why people decide, but we know a lot about the unwritten kinds of stuff that people have assumed is the rule. And your job as a marketer and insurgent is to change the rules, but you can't change it all at once. And you can't change it by proving you are right. right. I'll give you another example from when I was a book packager. So I had this idea in 1988. So Book publishers were spending a lot of money acquiring books. And the way the book business works is you get all the money at the beginning. And if the book doesn't sell, you don't have to give any of the money back. So they're taking crapshoot all the time. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a business where you give me the cover of a book you're thinking of publishing. And I will have a, a book club with a thousand people in it. And I'll mail the book cover, the jackets of a hundred potential upcoming books. And I'll say, you can have any 10 of these books you want for free. Which 10 do you want? As a way of doing this smart market testing, then I'll go back to the publisher a week later and say, you know that book you're thinking of publishing? Don't publish it. No one wants it. And it's only going to cost you $1,000 to run this test. So you don't spend a million dollars to buy a book. That's a no-brainer, right? From my point of view, $1,000 times 100 books. I'm making $100,000 a week doing this. I'm providing this great service. Everybody wins. Why didn't it work? Every book publisher in New York turned me down. Why? The reason is your status as a low-paid, well-educated book editor is wrapped up in the fact that your boss trusts you to pick good books. And if you're going to turn around and use a market research service, you've just given up all your status. What do I need you for? Right? It's if if you're relying on data, well then you're not a magic person anymore. You're not a magician. So what I was doing was I was going to people, I had low status, they had high status. I said, trade me some of your status and your money, and I'll tell you the truth. They don't want the truth. They want more status. And it turns out in the book industry, this is still true. The book doesn't come out for a year and a half after you buy it, and no one keeps score of how good you were doing at picking. 
because it's a year and a half later. No one even remembers what you did. They like that. That's why they're in the book business, not in the TV business. They're not because they're getting paid a lot. And so once I learned to see status and to realize the narrative, then my business started to work. So I used to send out book proposals, typeset, beautiful looking. This is what the book's going to look like with a spreadsheet of data about who was going to buy it. And this guy, John Boswell, with a lot of profanity, ripped up one of my proposals, threw it out and told me what he did, which is he, he had his secretary retype his proposals on a manual typewriter and send those out. Because when you get a, something like that, if you're an editor, what you're reading is hope. Right. I can take this and make it better. And he was selling hope. I was selling the truth. And he was running circles around me because that's what they wanted to buy. Okay, but he was running circles around you in terms of the old publishing models, but presumably side by side on Amazon, you know, unlike an open market where everything's available, your stuff would have won, right? Well, first of all, my stuff stuff didn't get published right? because I didn't get through the filter. But secondly, books like French for Cats and O.J. Simpson's Legal Pad sold millions of copies, not because they were demonstrably better, but because they were well-published. Because in those days, if the editor liked it, the editor promoted it more. If the editor promoted it more, it got into more bookstores. If it got into more bookstores, it was more likely to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. This idea, you know, a, another simple example. Within six months of Twitter launching, there were a hundred smart programmers who realized you could write the code for Twitter in a weekend. And they all launched Twitter clones, and none of them succeeded. Why is that? Right? It's not because Twitter was better. Twitter wasn't better. It, Twitter was the same. It's because Twitter was the high status alternative and the others were cheap imitations for people who didn't want to use the real one. Right. Bit of a network effect as well, right? Well, that's the same. It's the same thing. Right. Okay. Right. At the beginning, there were only 50,000 people. The network effect was tiny. Right. Okay. It's not like people in the country music industry said, oh, there's no country music people on Twitter. Let's just adopt this one instead. The network effect wasn't what was at work. What was at work was the status that comes with the network effect, right? Which is, doesn't do any good to be a big shot in a little Twitter clone. I need to be a big shot in the real one, the big city. So I'm going to bring my camp over there. Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat is brought to you by The Joy of Work, the new book by me, Bruce Daisley. The first reviews have just started to come in for The Joy of Work. Dan Pink says that Bruce Daisley has pulled together threads of research and woven them into a tapestry of strategies that actually work, that don't depend on the CEO's sign-up for implementation. Professor Sophie Scott says, This is a warm, wise and funny book, which provides a terrific summary of some of the science and stories behind what makes work a positive part of people's lives. I loved it. The Joy of Work is out for pre-order on Amazon and Waterstones now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now back to the chat with Seth Godin. There's an interesting thing because you, you talk about um, you talk about in this book in in this is marketing you talk about like anyone who's trying to build an audience for a product or buy or get people to buy it you talk about sort of starting with as small as an audience as possible it's almost like stop trying to boil the ocean stop trying to reach everyone but try and pinpoint a really small group and. You explain that when it comes to like trying to win elections or you, you know, like primary elections, or you explain that in other ways. But how would someone, and I can understand, so you're talking about that, that competitor social product. Maybe if you did corner the market in the country music area, then actually you've got, you know, most social media actually started normally in a very, in a very small community, didn't they? Whether Facebook at Harvard or, you know, and then immediately distribute. But, but but can you give me a sense, if people are pinpointing a specific audience, that's not always going to scale, right? Well, first of all, scaling is overrated. Okay. That your job is not to make Wall Street happy. Your job is to do work you're proud of in a way that makes it worth going to work tomorrow. And there's this capitalist mythology that if you're not the biggest forever, you somehow lost. Well, we know that you don't, you know, if I look at um, Slack, Slack only has, I can't remember the number, I just read it, a couple million people using it regularly. That's enough to build a multi-billion dollar company. It's enough. Done. Why do you need everyone to use it? You don't. And particularly if you're not a social network, you know, if you're someone who makes coffee, coffee beans, you don't, you couldn't even have everyone in the world drink your coffee beans. You don't have enough trees. So stop worrying about pleasing everyone. That's just a form of hiding that lets you average stuff out to hide from critics. Instead, who are you going to offend on your way to pleasing a few people to create that sort of status in that sort of circle? And this is very hard for a lot of people when they read my book to realize that not only is the smallest viable audience a pretty new way to talk about it, but they can't even think of businesses that didn't do that. Once you see it, Every business did that, right? They would say, it would be enough if we could just delight the Ivy League. It would be enough if it's South by Southwest, this became irresistible. I got to pick my audience and I overwhelm them with goodness. It's enough because after that, they will tell their friends, not my job, their job. and do you think that breeds inventive thinking anyway? I, I, I judged some design awards last year, and like one of the, the, the most successful launches of the year was these little squeezable sachets of peanut butter that they sold into gyms, right? So, like, you know, who, who buys peanut butter in gyms? Who would ever think of it? No right. one. But they had it in the squeeze. And I, I, 
and I think, you know, you can definitely see that line of thinking that you mentioned there. Start with like a really ridiculously small use case and try and win there. And of course, now it's become a massive, it's like the, one of the best launches in years because it's expanded from that use case. But probably that thinking of win one audience over really well right. was, the, was the way that they went to success. Right. And it's hard because if the gym rats don't like it, you're toast. It's over. So that's why it's hard. Because if you say this generic stuff will make lots of people happy and someone doesn't like it, you say, well, it's for everyone. But if you say it's for gym rats in Liverpool and they don't like it, you failed. And I think there's no better privilege than being able to say, I know exactly who it's for. Thank you for letting me know I didn't do it right. I'll try again. And that's, again, I learned that in the book world, there were only 100 people I could sell to, only 100. And so by obsessing with what those 100 people wanted, I could make something that would get to the next level through the, the, the thing. But in order to do that, you have to be willing to have some people hate what you did. And, yeah, and sort of celebrate it a bit, I guess. Yeah, that means you're onto something. Let's talk about this. You, you, you say in your book, and, and, and it's such an easily thrown away thing that I want to challenge you a bit on it. You say sort of culture beat strategy. You say, I think your exact f- sentence that I wrote down is culture beats strategy, culture is strategy. Right, so, so let's go into what you mean by that because that's obviously my personal obsession and, and sort of the thing we talk about here. What specifically do you mean? Okay, so if I look at the strategy that was in the business plan at Google or the strategy that was at the business plan of Facebook, I could sit with a whole bunch of Harvard MBA people and we could argue about the finer points, but there was some brilliant strategy there. But over time, decisions get made and they get made not by the CEO in a vacuum. They get made by the way the institution sees itself, by who they think they are and who they want to become. And so there were people sitting at a conference table at Facebook who said, should we take all this money from the Russians and run political ads? Why did they do that? Because of their strategy? No, they did that because of their culture. The culture that was all about seeing themselves as a take-no-prisoners competitor, seeing themselves as an institution that monetized privacy at every turn, right? A different culture would have taken a different decision. So it becomes your strategy, the kind of environment that you are building, right? Andy Warhol built a culture inside the factory. Andy Warhol's culture and the people who were in the room drove each one of the three cycles that followed that made him the most profitable artist of the 20th century, right? He didn't have a strategy other than I'm going to work and be surrounded by people like this. Because it gets to people like us do things like this. So who are the people like us? If you build a Silicon Valley venture-funded company that needs to go public or the board meetings suck, you've already determined your strategy because you already determined your culture. And you say this then. You say that now, say if you want to make change, change culture. But based on what you've said there, the idea of changing culture is a charming easy throwaway. It would be a wonderful bullet point on one of your beloved PowerPoints. It's almost like you're saying, change your personality. And as much as we might all promise our partners, we're going to change the aspects of our personality that they don't like. um, 
changing personality and a spec-changing culture. It's no easy thing, right? Well, I don't know how closely you read it, but if you read it really closely, I don't think in one spot I said this is easy. <laughs> okay. If it was easy, everyone would do it. You know, what's easy is to change your strategy. It's really hard to change your culture. I totally get that. And the reason it's hard to change your culture, you know, you think about companies that have bullies at fairly senior levels. And it's obvious to the bosses that this guy's a bully. You can't miss it. So why is he still there? Because they say, well, because he makes his numbers, because he knows all the stuff we can't live without. Well, by making this decision, you've just determined your culture. And if you want to change your culture, it's not complicated. It's just hard. Fire him. If you fire him, your culture is going to change. If you want to build a diverse institution, hire some people who don't look like you. But that's hard. I get that it's hard, but it's not complicated, right? So yes, we can change our culture the same way we can change our personality. My personality was, my ADD was, oh, puppy, look, there's a puppy. I was just completely out of control, distracting myself at all times. And I decided it was more important to me to make an impact on the culture than it was to feed my distraction. And so I taught myself to sit still long enough to make an impact. That was really hard. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done on myself. But we can do it if it's important. We can change the culture of an organization. I mean, I went to Walmart years ago. They saw Amazon coming at them and they were unable to do anything about it. And it's not because they weren't smart. It's because they had a culture that didn't understand what it meant to build a technology company. And so putting all the bits together that I've heard you say here, you know, if it's top down trying to change a culture, then the idea of trying to put it on bulleted lists and mandate it is going to fail because you've not connected and you've not shown people it's not an idea that it's it's not an, right. it, even a top-down thing needs to be an idea that it spreads and if you're trying to be an agent of change who isn't at the top of an organization then you need to try and build allies you know you've got you've got to try and tackle the hierarchy somewhere along the way you've, you've got to enlist help there's dna but there's also mimetic dna the the, the cornerstone of our ideas and when we model them, it changes things. So one person, three people, a tiny division, modeling a behavior of a new culture will start to infect the whole organization. You don't need a meeting to do it. You simply begin. And when you start doing that, you know, a, a guy I know runs a, a nonprofit called Build On. And Build On works with inner city kids to help those kids not not drop out of high school and make a difference in their community. And big companies send their executives to build on for one weekend because they get to see this empathy in action. And that's great. But the organizations that send people three weekends, five weekends a year, and are going back and going back, those are the organizations that are actually changing. And it's because People who had a choice, not the CEO, not the owner, but people who had a choice said, I'm going to use my budget and my authority and my status to bring five people from my team who are going back there. And what you go back to do and back to do and back to do, that sends a message to everybody about what things are like around here. 
Right. So something that's a commitment rather than just tourism. Exactly. When you travel around and you see different businesses and, you, and you're, uh, you, you've earned the respect of so many people that you're invited, in, no doubt, into interesting places, are there any things that you, you see certain organisations seem to have captured something that seems tangibly different to others? You know, I thought that there was a way that a modern, profitable company acted that felt different than the old school thing. So my dad used to run the biggest hospital crib company in the world, uh, 40 people who bent steel with a union workforce to make cribs out of metal. And in those settings, you don't spend a lot of time worrying about who's getting a lunch break than bringing catered stuff. And you know it's a different kind of work. But you spend time at a Google or a Facebook and these other companies, and you come to the conclusion that lots of profit lead to it feeling more like a college campus. But over the last couple of years, I've discovered that's not true at all. That, you know, when I was at Yahoo, the Salesforce was glued to their laptops, checking the stock price every five minutes. And people stayed till 1130 at night because the boss liked to stay up late and they wanted to impress. I mean, none of the, all the worst behaviors that you could ever imagine in a corporate setting. But then I'll run into someone like Sean Askinosi who makes chocolate in Missouri with open book management, with tons of money going to the farmers, with a, a, a team with almost no turnover, doing work because they care about it. So I've come to the conclusion there's no correlation. And that one of the things that's a real danger is what happens if you're a public company. Because if you're a public company and people in the company have stock options, if your stock goes up two bucks, it means people you're going to see today just made an extra $50,000. And if you have to make a hard decision and you make your stock go down two bucks, you're going to be surrounded by people who are shell-shocked. And it's causing these organizations to act all the wrong ways. Google keeps doing things they're not proud of just to make their stock price go up, right? That Twitter had 20 really interesting choices along the way that they didn't take because there was pressure to make the stock price go up. So I think if you culturally are trying to shift an organization that's public, you got to begin with what are people keeping score of and how do you create a dynamic so they keep the right thing? Because undoing all our capitalist training that says, oh, I know exactly how much my Twitter stock is worth. That's not easy, but it's worth it because as we talked about 10 minutes ago, culture and strategy. Culture beats strategy every time. Yeah. And do you think it's just because historically strategy has felt like the sensible, the smart, the, the, the clever thing to do? You know, people go and study MBAs. It's about sort of trying to master the strategic insights. Is, exactly. Is it because we appear to care more about those things. Yeah. And, you know, we rewrite history to give credit to the generals. But the generals haven't won a war in a really long time. It's the privates, it's the people in the streets, it's the people going door to door. And it's a mistake to say, for example, that Google won because they had a better strategy. That's not actually why. They won because, uh, you know, Marissa said something on the right day and kept words off the homepage. And then they won because someone whose name I can't remember 
had the temerity to invent AdSense and pay for the whole thing. Neither one of which was in the strategy. Neither one. Yeah, they licensed it. They they initially licensed it off. Right, from Bill Gross, right? And and so let's not get hung up on the fact that you might be able to find Eureka, the right answer in a book, because there's not a lot of history that that's what makes things work. And we know that Facebook wasn't the first social network. There was one before that one and one before that. That's not what made it work. So we are going to spend most of our lives at the office. And I'm with you. Why would we want to build an organization to spend our lives in that we don't like, that we're not proud of? And if we're going to change it, we're not going to change it because we have a better strategy. We're going to change it because we understand that marketing is about telling stories to people that resonate and cause change to happen. Um, the, the final thing I'll, I'll just end on, when I'm sort of going through all the wonderful things that you've done, one of the things that I find myself encountering is that idea that, you know, do you remember the old patent office thing that all of the, all of the inventions have now been made? And, you know, you know the, the, we've got an a, a innate um, suspicion of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeless at projecting forwards what our phone will look like in 10 years because it feels like it's done, right? It feels like the job's done. And uh, when it comes to marketing ideas, it feels like all the clever ideas have, have been created because our minds work like that. How do you inspire people to, to believe that actually those things haven't been done, that, you know, original ideas lie as ahead as much as behind? Uh, well, I think... The next big thing has been here for 20 years, which is attention and trust are just about all that matter. But within that understanding that attention and trust are at the heart of it, the number of tactics to be invented is huge. That when I started on the internet in 1990, no one imagined any of this. And that was only, what, 28 years ago. All of it. The, the shifts are manifest and enormous, but I don't think people should wait for the next thing. I think they should pay attention to trust and attention because if you can get those things understood, the tactics will take care of themselves. It's interesting. I was chatting to a group of school children yesterday, and I, I often discuss this. Um, my first job uh, I got from sending a cartoon resume, a cartoon CV. Uh, Of course you did. Basically, because I'd I'd sent 50 letters to organizations and got no replies. I sent a cartoon one and got 30 replies. And uh, and I always say to the kids, look, I get no... I, I get no physical mail these days. And so your point right. is exactly right. That in terms of getting attention, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still routes to get attention. And actually probably the way that life has evolved and changed is that they might be the ways that we've now abandoned, you know, like snail mail might be a good way to get attention these days. Who knows? But do it for other people. Don't do it to other people. Okay. Explain that. Explain that. Well, because... Attention is easy to suspend. It's easy to take back and trust can be blown. So if you show up because it's good for you, if you interrupt me because it's good for you, we're done. We're done forever, right? Whereas if you show up because it's good for me, then I say, please do that again. And that's the biggest shift in our marketing culture in the last 25 years is that attention shifted from, oh, yeah, I'll watch that commercial. I got nothing else to do to, what? You just spam me? You're dead to me. You can especially see it now, but I guess it was, it's always been the case. Thank you. Fabulous chat. Bravo. Well, thank you for this time and thank you for this show. I loved it. It was super fun. 
So I mentioned that Seth's got a new book out and it's out this week. It's called This Is Marketing. Very easy read, actually. And it's got, I think, probably four or five really big ideas. So if you're facing a challenge and, you know, witness here, a marketing challenge isn't necessarily what we would call marketing. Uh, then his book could be a fascinating inspiration for you. But, you know, if if you're saving the pennies for Christmas, he's got loads of stuff on his website, free videos, free downloads, so he's someone to explore. The best way to get all new episodes is to go to Apple Podcasts and to subscribe there. You can also subscribe on Stitcher or other platforms. But if you go to Apple Podcasts, feel free to leave us a five-star review. And there's a few hundred of them, actually. That helps other people find Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Thank you for listening. I'm Bruce Daisley. Always welcome you linking into me. And I look forward to speaking to you next week. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.